Welcome to the third in this series of teachings based on the teaching I give to pastors and leaders around the world, Gospel Revolution Seminar. Notice the two words, gospel, good news. News is something that already happened. Uh, the gospel is the power of God. The message has power in it. You don't pray the power down. You preach the power out. Uh, and you announce what has already happened, what God has already done for the world. Now, to some people, according to Paul, this is foolishness. It is, the word is moron. It is moronic. It's, 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 uh, it goes against the grain of, of, of nat normal thinking. See, Everything in the universe seems to be built on cause and effect. You tell your children, do good, and you get a good report card. Do good to your teachers, and your teachers will love you back. In other words, cause and effect. But the gospel seems moronic to some, according to the scripture, because it is even if you have done bad. And you're not that God wants you to do bad, not that you're going to continue to do bad, but if you've done bad, from God, you're not going to get bad. You're going to get love. You're going to get good. Now, from the police, you may get bad. From the court system, you may get bad. If you've done bad, you may get bad in all those areas. But no matter what you have done, even if your mama doesn't want to talk to you, God's hands are outstretched, full of love towards you. Good news. Uh, to some, the Bible says it's scandalous. Uh, the word in the Greek is scandalon. And that's where we get our English word. Paul says to some people, it's just scandalous. They think, you know, whatever you have done wrong, you should pay for it. You shouldn't. They think you get away with it. You should pay for your sins. And that seems reasonable enough. I understand there's something in us that says, well, that's the way it is. But that's not the gospel. You say, well, if I was God, then for sure people would have to pay. Well, we're so glad that you're not God because uh, that would not be a good thing. But God is God, and God says, I'm doing something scandalous. I mean, it, 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 look at the Bible. It seems like Jesus gives gold medals to losers. It, it seems the people that you would least expect, the last and the least and the lost, they're the ones who get to the front row. I mean, that's the first shall be the last, and the last shall be the first. We, we, I, I don't have time to go over all of that, but that's the gospel. And, and we use the word revolution, not revival. Revivals you need ever so often, renewals, I suppose, and refreshings you need every day. All words that start with the letter R, but I picked the word revolution. I mean, something has been going in the wrong direction for so long, you need a complete overhaul. And I'm saying we need a complete overhaul when it comes to the gospel, especially people who think they know the gospel and as soon as they open their mouth, you understand, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. They're giving bad news to people. They think that they are, they're God's little police officer trying to catch the sinner in the evil of his way and, and read him his rights, which are not very many. But you see, we are, we are good news messengers. We follow the Jesus Christ who said, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. I mean, I don't know how Christians become such world champions of condemnation. I mean, we're good at it. We, and the world knows us for being these finger-wagging, I tell you, and we look a little angry. You should look angry. If your God is angry, you should look angry. 
<laughs> but my God isn't angry. That's why I can smile. My, my God sent Jesus Christ, who didn't come to condemn, but to give life and to save. That's our message. Uh, uh, you say, well, isn't there an accountability? Yes, there is. But judgment belongs to the Lord. And Jesus said in John chapter 12, he said, if you hear my words, and if you don't believe my words, he says, I don't condemn you. But on the last day, he says, these things will be said. Read it for yourself. So I, I cannot think of myself more highly than Jesus. I cannot say, well, if you don't hear and believe like Peter Youngren is preaching, I'm quoting from the Bible here, you're condemned. Oh, I, I can't lift myself above Jesus. If the great Jesus who we follow, who is the Savior of the world, God from God to show us God, if he says, if you hear my words, imagine that, you hear him speak, and you don't believe. He says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. But he says, at the last day, this will be settled. And you may be condemned by your own words, but I'm not going to do it. So I, I, I want to follow in, in the category of Jesus. Well, the last two sessions, we've been talking the gospel for believers. You know, if believers aren't happy about their salvation, or if they just pretend to be happy, they go around like a, like a wind-up doll, hallelujah, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And you say, what are you praising the Lord for? And so they come up with some theological concept. You know, but inwardly, they're kind of feeling unworthy. They're feeling, I don't measure up. I'm not good enough. Well, such a believer will have nothing to share, or at least if they think they have something to share, nobody wants to hear them because they're thinking, well, I got enough misery on my own without listening to you. And so, you know, there's something about Jesus, the, the, the sinners, especially the big time crooks, heard him gladly. Something about that, isn't it? How is it in your church? Do the big crooks come to your church? I hope they do. Some people said to me one time, you know, Pastor Peter, we have some hypocrites coming to our church. Well, I said, that, that means we are the church of the living God. What kind of church are you if you don't have any hypocrites coming? <laughs> I wouldn't want to hang around your place. In Jesus' meetings, it was full of hypocrites and crooked people in general and some who, who were kind of known sinners and some who were secret sinners. And, and so that just means that uh, we are the church of the living God. We are, we are in this world. Not of this world, but we are in this world. So, but, but now I want to I turn it. We're going a step further. I'm going to talk about gospel to the world and specifically I'm going to center this around the Holy Spirit. You remember the foundation I laid in the previous two sessions. You have the religious system, which in the Bible is called the Old Covenant, which is really a picture of all religious system, not just the Jewish system. It's about what you can do to uh, please God, to make yourself worthy, acceptable to God. And then you have the New Covenant, the Gospel, which is what Christ has done. <laughs> you can say the one is do, 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 do. The other one is done, 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 done. And so if you're preaching the gospel, you're preaching something that's done. The, we call it the finished work of Christ. Now, we respond to that. Some people, you know, they get a, I get a little annoyed, but in a loving way. They said, oh, the finished work of Christ. I mean, there's nothing for us to do. You know, if you're going to hear me teach, don't just listen for the first two minutes. Listen to the whole thing. And you will see, of course, we respond to this grace. We are holy as we discover that he is holy. 
We are, are righteous as we discover that he has become our righteousness. We're growing in the grace. Of course, we respond. But, but that doesn't change the fact that it is a gift. Righteousness is a gift, not something we earn. And so we try to just make sure that all of you believers are happy. But then we have a world close to 8 billion people. 29% of the world's population by the latest statistics have virtually no access to the gospel. Another 39% could supposedly hear the gospel. They live in areas where the gospel is available, but for some reason either they have rejected it or, or they haven't really been exposed to it. And so we have a, we have a big message for the world. And uh, the only one that can help us is the Holy Spirit. So what we want to make sure is that we work with the Holy Spirit. Not, not, not work against or contrary or doing our own religious thing. And then we say, Holy Spirit, come and bless what we're doing here. And he says, I can't bless you because you're not in my flow. So let's find out. Let's go to John chapter 16. Hold on tight. Open up your Bible right now because uh, we're going to stay here for a while. It says here, Verse 7 there says that the helper, the Holy Spirit, will come. Then verse 8 says, and he, when he comes, he will convict, not condemn, he will convict who? The world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, I dare say this is one of the most misunderstood and misquoted scripture verses. You know when you go to Bible college, they have a course there called homiletics. It's teaching people how to preach. And so they learned that uh, you should have an introduction and then you should have three points. That's kind of the ideal. You can have two or four or one point, but, but really three is the ideal and then a conclusion. So, you know, if you're a Bible school student, you say, well, here, here's a good verse. I can quote, a, preach this one. Number one, my introduction is the Holy Spirit has come. And then they preach it like this. He's come to convict of sin righteousness and judgment. And then I suppose the conclusion is come to Christ now. Uh, but the way this is often preached is the Holy Spirit is convicting you of all your sins. Everything you've done, nothing is hidden. Don't think that you can sit there and hide in the church seat, in the pew. The, oh, you, you try to stir them up about it. And then the second point is, He's come to convict of righteousness. I know many of you are not as righteous as you should be. You're not, you know yourself, don't try to hide. And you, you hammer them again. You hit them again. And he says, the Holy Spirit's come to convict of judgment. And that's like a third opportunity to really give them the knockdown punch and say, you're going to be judged. You're going you're to face what you have done. And then say, now, come forward to give your life to Christ. Well, that might be a sermon but it's not what Jesus talked about at all. Not at all. He said, how do you know? What made you so high and mighty, Peter Younger, that you think you know what Jesus meant? Well, don't trust me. Trust Jesus. Because I'm so glad on this account, Jesus himself explains what he means. So we don't have to have a debate. Well, I think he meant this, and I think he meant that. We can just keep reading. We look at every verse in its context. So let's go to the next verse here. Verse number nine. So he will convict concerning sin. Verse nine says, concerning sin because 
They don't believe in me. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you would have thought if, if, if Jesus was going to highlight one sin where the Holy Spirit is really going to go to work on the world, could have been murder. I mean, what is worse than that? It could have been, it could have been stealing, adultery, lying. We could kind of list the top five or top six and say, well, <laughs> You know, if he's going to convict of sin, because notice it doesn't say convict of sins. Notice it doesn't say sins. It says sin. Now, you'll remember to the previous lessons, I talked about how we go from the old covenant, from the religious system into the gospel. The first step was the cross. What happened at the cross? Jesus takes the sins of the world, all the sin from Adam to Main Street where you live, from Adam and Eve to your family, Jesus takes all sin and all shame upon himself and he puts it away. That's beautiful, isn't it? And so you, you cannot have double indemnity here. If Jesus took all the sins, you cannot be punished over again if Jesus already took your sins. So what is the one sin here? What is the one sin that stops the world from having this beautiful, eternal, abundant life. What is the one sin? Well, here it says is not believing in Jesus. People say, well, well, if I was God, I wouldn't have picked that sin because who's going to get convicted by that? You need to name some real things that people are doing that nobody knows about. They're doing it in darkness. No, the Holy Spirit says this is the sin that the Holy Spirit is convicting of. Not believing in Jesus. Not, so, so Jesus is the central question here. You know, I remember one time a, a dear lady, she was very insistent that I was going to pray for her son. She kind of took me aside. She cornered me and she was very insistent. She said, my son is a drug addict. You need to pray against the drugs. You need to take authority over the drugs. You need to pray against the drug addiction. And she was just going at me. You know, I try to be nice. Don't always succeed, but I try to be nice to people. And so I said, yeah, yeah, okay. I said, so now, Mama, wait a moment. I said, your son doesn't really have a, a, a drug problem. Well, she said, yes, he does. I know him. I go to his room and he's gone. I find out what's going on. I said, with, with all due respect, your son doesn't really have a drug problem. Your son has a Jesus problem. You see, the real thing that the Holy Spirit is wanting to do with your son is bring your son to Jesus. So you want me to pray about the drugs because the drugs to you is the problem. But from the Holy Spirit's point of view, the drugs are not the problem. It is that your son doesn't have Jesus in his life. So, so let's pray. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit Will you send people in the way of your son that will show him the way of Jesus, that he will be drawn to Jesus. He will believe on Jesus. And I said, the wonderful thing is this, that you think that the drugs are the problem, but I say it's really a Jesus problem. And when your son receives and acknowledges Jesus Christ, you will notice the drug problem starts to vanish until he's totally free. You see, many people think that the Holy Spirit is this... Uh, bloodhound of heaven that sniffs out people's sins, just sniffing, 
find out what, what else kind of have they done wrong. And then preachers, they try to think that they are prophetic in sync with the Holy Spirit. And they, they're sniffing too to find out if they can find something to condemn people with. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus put away the sins of the world. Now, l- let me just read some scripture verses here. And, and please note that this is for the world. Sometimes we make everything for us, for the church. We kind of, you know, God bless us for and no more. But we have to see that the gospel is for the world. So, for example, keep now, now, now stay in John 16 because I'm going to go back and forth there probably you know, this session is not going to be enough. We'll have to, but, but we are at it for these 45 or 50 minutes that I have. But go to John 1:29, where it says, the next day, this is John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of, of who? Of the Pentecostals, the Baptists, the Methodists, Catholics, the world, the world. That's currently 8 billion people, almost 8 billion. Probably by the time you listen to this, it'll be 8 billion. Take away the sin of the world. So whose sins did Jesus take away? The world's sins. Don't, don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. Some people get so nervous when I say, oh, we say oh, 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 oh. they haven't repented yet. Well, we'll do, you know. Settle down. We'll get to that. Don't get nervous. Let's just face the fact of the scripture. He took away the sin of the world. That means every single sin has been removed by what Jesus did. So you say, well, that's just one verse. I'm glad you suggested that. We need at least two or three. So let's go to a second one. Let's go to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. Let's see there. I'll find it in a moment. You follow along in your Bible. I think they have it maybe on the screen or it's coming up. 1 John 2. Where, where John writes, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's what I say. When we talk about that Jesus take away, took away the sins of the world, we're not encouraging people to sin as some erroneously think. Now, I'm glad to say that when some people say, oh, Pastor Peter Younger, you know, you're talking so much about God's grace that people get encouraged to sin. Well, you're putting me in the same box with Paul the Apostle. He was also accused of the same thing. And so I think it's four times he says, uh, you know, some people say that we are saying that if, if Jesus took away your sin, you just go ahead and sin over even more. He says, certainly not. He says, certainly not. What are you talking about? Did you miss the whole thing Paul is saying? How should we who died to sin live to it any longer? And so that's not what we're saying at all. We're saying don't sin. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hurt your family. You're going to hurt people around you. You may end up in jail if you commit a certain kind of a sin, and we don't want that. So don't sin. Don't sin. But if anyone sins, could that ever happen? Maybe you're a Christian to go to church. Has anybody in your church ever sinned? Could that, he says, if, if, it means it could happen. If anyone sins, wh- what about that? Well, he says, well, then it's just an open season for the devil to have a go at that person. Or many preachers say that if you sin, the devil is coming to eat your breakfast. He's going to chew you up and spit you out. Demons are taking over. They're saying, look, <laughs> But that's not what he says here. If anybody sins, does he say, let me read it here. If anyone sins, then the devil will take over their life. If anyone sins, they open the door to demons. Is that what he says? No, he says, if anyone sins, 
we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now remember that phrase, the righteous. I'll get to it either in this session or the next. Remember it. But I'm not going to cover that word, the righteous, right now. It's coming later. But it, just to say that we have an advocate with the Father. So that means even if you do sin and don't do it, don't sin. But if you sin, it's none of the devil's business. <laughs> it, it's none of any demonic being's business with you. It's between you and God. And you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Then it says, verse 2, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, the forgiveness, the removal of our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole Christian church. Is that what it says? For the whole world. I mean for everybody, the whole world. There's nothing small, there's nothing little. It's for the world, for everybody. Does that mean Buddhist? Does it mean atheist? Does it mean Muslim? Does it mean Hindu? Does it mean Shintoist? Does it mean Confucianist? Does it mean, what does it mean? Well, it means the world. He said, well, that's only two verses, and it's both from John. Okay, I'm glad you suggested that. So I give, I give the Apostle Paul a shot at it as well. He says over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll go to it here in verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now I suppose that's kind of speaking to the believers, to the us here. Let's just call it that anyhow. So do you believe that? Do you believe that you've been reconciled to God? I mean, it amazes me. I meet Christians sometimes. They go to church every Sunday. They've been doing it for 30, 40 years. And they say, oh, Pastor Peter, can you pray for me? I just don't have the assurance that my sins have been forgiven. I said, how long have you, how long since you received Christ as your Savior? Oh, 40 years. I said, what kind of teaching have you been listening to? What kind of silly thing got into your head? You still don't know that your sins have been forgiven. I said, you need to find yourself a church where you get established in, 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 in kind of the 101, the basic, that your sins are forgiven. I mean, my goodness, Jesus said that to the man who came through the roof who didn't even ask for forgiveness of sin. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And somebody can go to church for 30 years and still be, I'm, I'm such deep anxiety. Oh, I wonder if my sins are forgiven. But your sins are forgiven. That's verse 18. Let's go to verse 19. That is, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Do you see that? The world. Reconciling all the praying people. Reconciling all those who repented. Reconciling all those who were good. All those who were faithful in church. All those who fasted. No, it's just reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In the Amplified, it says, not counting their trespasses, he has canceled them. That's a good word. Your sins have been canceled. Your transgressions have been canceled. That's something to think about. You know, if we cancel something, it means it's not happening. If we have an event scheduled for a certain time and a certain day and everybody's getting ready to come and then we send a note saying it's canceled. 
Well, you can go to the event, you can, but there's no event there. You can go to the place and the building or wherever it was going to be, but it's not happening because it's been canceled. And so here it says that God, in reference to the world, this is the reference is the world. The topic is sin and the reference is to the world that God doesn't count the world's sins. I find it amazing. And in our pastor seminars, I deal with this, but how many preachers are so good at counting people's sins? They can just say, well, you know, we're dealing with this and we're dealing with that. They have like a list of all the sins. They're so good at it. And yet it says God doesn't count the world's sins. They say, well, in our country, you know, we have, a, we have idolatry here. We have this. We have witchcraft. People can, people can give you the whole list. And they think they're prophetic, that they have seen something. Frankly, most of the sins happening in a country, you can just get them by reading the newspaper. It's not that technical. Just open up the newspaper. You'll find quite a few sins that happened in the last few days reported by journalists. But you see, it says God doesn't count them. Doesn't mean that sins are not serious and grave and terrible. Yes, they're all of that. But God doesn't count them because he wouldn't benefit anybody for God to count it. So God wants to save. He didn't come to count. He didn't come to condemn sins. He didn't come to list all the sins in whatever country you're living. He came to save. So he doesn't count their trespasses. He canceled them. And he has given to us the word of reconciliation, which means we are ambassadors for God, saying, be reconciled to God. Now, so here again, it's very clear. It's the world. What is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is convincing the world to believe on Jesus because Jesus has put away the world's sins. Now, the reason I said some people get so nervous, they can hardly hear this, they can hardly read this, they want to they butt in and show them, what about, what about this, what about this, what about that? Well, see, here is a major misunderstanding. People say to me, I remember one very famous preacher, he went to be with the Lord. He says, well, if you believe all that, if you believe all those verses, why are you even doing world missions? Because you're saying everybody is saved already, aren't you? I said, dear pastor, you've been, he had been pastor longer than I had, but now he's been with the Lord for a while, so I've caught up to him. He was a head of a whole denomination. I mean, this was no small preacher. He kind of got upset. He says, if you believe all that, why do, you, why do you go and preach to Muslims? They, they, I suppose they're saved already. Who said that they're saved already? You see, that kind of thinking comes from a misunderstanding. And I was under that misunderstanding for a long time, so I don't blame anybody else. But uh, reconciliation and salvation are not the same thing. See, that's a revelation to many people. They think like these words, justified, reconciled, saved, born again. It's all kind of, it all kind of means the same thing. And, you know, can just use the words interchangeably just to kind of break it up a little bit, change the language a little bit. But no, the scripture is very clear that reconciliation and salvation is not the same thing. If you can just get this, it'll be worth the whole session. Just get this. He said, well, can you prove that from the Bible? Of course I can. Do you think I would go this far and not being able to show it from the Bible? No, I'm not going to do that. But let me say before I read the scripture, reconciliation is something that's already happened. The world has been reconciled. The sins have been put away. Salvation is when you receive and you believe that the reconciliation has occurred. Now let's prove this. There are many verses, but the one that really 
kind of proves it without any ability to really dispute it that I can see. It makes the distinction all in one verse. Sometimes it takes a whole chapter, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter. So just the, the one verse here, and that's Romans 5 and verse 10, where it says, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So what does it say here? Let's break it down. Who did God reconcile? He reconciled us who were his enemies. So we were not praying people. We were not seeking after God. We were enemies of God, and God reconciled us. When did that happen? At the cross. <laughs> you know, God was in Christ reconciling the world. <laughs> so God wasn't sitting up in heaven looking down thinking, Christ, are you going to make it at the cross? No, God was in Christ. But that's a whole other teaching for another day. He was right there. And Jesus felt forsaken. He felt like he was forsaken, but he really wasn't forsaken. And, and he says in Psalm 24, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then later on in the Psalm says, you weren't forsaken. No, I heard your cry. You thought I didn't hear your cry. I heard your cry, the Father says. So God was in Christ. But that's a whole other teaching for another day. Uh, but just to say, the world was included here. And reconciliation was accomplished for the whole world. But here it says then in Romans 5.10, it says, so if that happened while we were enemies, how much more that that has happened? We have been reconciled. Now we shall also be saved by his life. So being reconciled and being saved are two different things. We were reconciled when we were yet enemies of God, before we were even born. Jesus took your sins, you were reconciled to God. And now you shall be saved by his life. Whoever has the Son, Jesus Christ, has life. He who does not have the Son, Jesus Christ, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on that person. Of course, that person is still walking under these intrinsic uh, uh, consequences of, of willfully choosing to walk away from the God who loves you. But if you believe, you have life. And, and so here we see that. So the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of this. Now notice how the Apostle Paul practiced this. For example, he came to a city called Corinth. Corinth was like a, I guess it was Las Vegas multiplied by a hundred times. I mean, Corinth was sin city in the Roman Empire. You can study this, what archaeology has taught us. For example, they had sports events completely in the nude. I mean, that would, that would raise a few eyebrows. Imagine that if the the football team was playing in the nude. That might cause a protest, you know, and I, please, I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that's what they were doing in Corinth. So you would have thought that Paul would have written at least two chapters in his book because he was there, according to history. He came just about the time that they had had one of those, uh, uh, not the full Olympics, because that was in Athens, but a pre-Olympic event there. But, but he doesn't have, he doesn't talk about that. And, and they had, temples to Aphrodite, Venus, uh, Poseidon. They had all kinds of idolatry. Why doesn't he devote chapter after chapter exposing these idols? Why does Paul says when he went to Sin City, when I came to you, I was with much fear and trembling because I wanted your faith to be established in the power of God. He says, I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
And when he says crucified, you can see in his writing, that means the whole finished work, the crucifixion, the resurrection, what Jesus had done, what his blood has done. Why is he focusing on that? Because he's following Jesus. He's in sync with the Holy Spirit, convincing the world of sin, of sin, because they don't believe in Jesus. That's why he said, I'm going to stay focused on Jesus. Now, when Philip, another one of the, of the greats of the book of Acts, Philip, we know him as the evangelist. He was a deacon for a time in the church, and then he was also an evangelist. And he had four daughters who prophesied, <laughs> and, and he is an interesting fellow. He went to a real sin city, Samaria. It, it was known for witchcraft. In fact, uh, there was a big witch doctor there who came to the meetings where Philip was preaching. And uh, he probably sat on the platform. You know, Philip didn't understand all about that. He didn't, he didn't need to discern that. He just, what did he do? He preached Christ. He says, Philip went down to Samaria, Acts 8, and he preached Christ to the people. He doesn't say, Philip went to Samaria and he preached against witchcraft. That's what many modern day preachers would do. They would say, I'm going to have an exposing witchcraft seminar followed by my powerful anointed deliverance prayer. <laughs> you been to one of those? Well, then next year he comes back and does the same thing again. So obviously what he did the year before didn't work. But that's not what Philip did. He didn't arrange for a prayer march around Samaria to tear down the spirit of witchcraft. He did one thing. He preached Christ to the people. Why? Because he was working with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to convict the world of sin. What sin? Not believing in Jesus. Philip was working that. Paul went to Athens again, another place where there was all kinds of idol worship. And what did he preach? He, he even kind of spoke nicely about the idol temples. He didn't wag his finger and says, you people, you have no idea. Your gods are dead. And no, He doesn't talk like that. Inwardly, he may have felt perturbed, but he didn't talk like that. He said, I see you're very religious, and I've come to share with you about the one man, Jesus Christ, by whom God judges the whole world. And, and he talked about the death and the resurrection of Christ. And some believed and some scoffed at him, especially when he spoke of the resurrection. And so what was Paul doing? His modus operandus was to work according to the outline of what Jesus had given in John chapter 16. When the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin, of sin, because they do not believe on me. That, that was the point. And so our job, you know, I say to people, well, you know, you need to tell people all their sins. You know, if I was to preach about all the sins, if I would go to any city in the world and I was going to list all their sins, I'd be there for a decade. My campaigns would never end. In fact, I wouldn't need to go to the world. I could just stay in the church, talk about all the gossip and slander and all the things that goes on by Christians. My goodness, I would have, I would have no time to do anything else but list all the sins. But uh, Paul took a good look at Sin City, Corinth. He said, well, you know, if I was going to start listing their sins, I'll never get to Thessalonica or the other places he was going afterwards. And he says, I'm going to preach Jesus Christ. So we don't preach the disease. We preach the cure. That's what we preach. It's not that we deny the disease. It's not that we say, oh, there's no sin. No, there's sin. 
But we know that talking about sin is not going to make people holy. See, that's where preachers get it wrong. That's why we need a gospel revolution. Because people think, think, well, you know, if I really expose it, if I lay it out there and really show them how bad they are, then they'll wake up and straighten out their ways. You have so much power in your words. Preachers, your sermons aren't that good. <laughs> oh, you can cause a, a momentary stir and maybe get people to come to the front of the auditorium and be prayed for and acknowledge that they are good for nothings. But beyond that, nothing is going to change. They'll need another dose of the same thing next Sunday. You see, this is not the spirit of Jesus Christ. There's something in religion that wants to beat people up. I like to tell the story. When I was uh, starting as a young preacher, of course, I, God, you know, I was preaching Jesus. I was always known to be a Jesus preacher. But uh, I didn't have the revelation, of course, that I have today, and I hope to keep growing in this revelation. And so I was, uh, probably I was 20 or 21 years old, and, and I had seen some great things happen. I went to one particular city in eastern Canada, and uh, I was supposed to stay there for five days to preach. And the pastor in that uh, church, it was a nice-sized church, he was known to be um, quite a tough guy. He had had a very famous evangelist, preacher, and he had stopped the meeting. He let him preach two or three nights. He was also supposed to be there for five nights. And then he sent him home and said, you're not doing any good. So, so my friends were saying, they were warning me, this guy doesn't like itinerant preacher. And I was, here I was, I think 21 at the time. And he says, oh, you better watch out for this guy. So when I got there, he, he was his brusque self. And uh, he said to me, well, what do you want? You just want a paycheck? It wasn't much of a paycheck in those days, but... You want, you want a revival? And I said, well, I think I want revival. So he said, well, let's pray. And so he, so he had some good things. I like this man. He became my close friend, in fact, afterwards. So, but but uh, I ended up staying there for six weeks. And, you know, that really did something because all the other churches heard about it. And I had to call ahead and say to the pastor where I was scheduled to be the next week, I can't come because, uh, and, and I'd get this pastor on the line and he would, he would call, actually, I wouldn't call. He would say, would, would you postpone your meeting in your city with Peter Youngren because, uh, uh, you know, God is doing such a great thing here, so we need to have him here for another week. And so, and that went on one week, two, three, four, five, six, you know. So in the next town, of course, they were, they were hyped by the time I got there. And, and so I went to the next town. And the same thing happened. I think I stayed four or five weeks there, preaching every night, you know. And so I was starting to feel kind of, you know, I'm, I'm powerful. I'm, I'm moving. I'm, I'm doing things. I'm God's man, you know. It, it's, it was a heady thing for a 21-year-old to, 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 you know, they said, we never, we never heard in our generation, we've never had meetings that extended like this. I, I was starting to feel like I'm really something. And so then after those two first places, I was going to a third place. And, of course, now they were like, 12 weeks behind. You know, they had to postpone 12 weeks in a row. So they, they knew that something powerful was happening. So I went to the next place. And I thought, well, this is going to be an encore of the first two, but it was a little tougher. It was a little tougher. And, and a little bit of resistance. So then, you know, I didn't know any better. I thought, well, you need to hit them in the head. So I, I started to preach condemning to them. I started to show them how they are not serving God like they should. They're not dedicated. They don't have a passion for the world. They don't care about their neighbors. I was letting them have it to try to 
thinking that that was going to get them going <laughs> to do something. And, and so it didn't do much. We went on two, three nights. And then I think of third or fourth night, I really went over the top. I mean, I let them have it. I was so, I, they all came to the front. I think they probably got scared. I mean, I prayed for them and I told them how they were lukewarm and everything else. But, you know, inwardly I kind of felt, I didn't feel good about it. I felt that I wasn't Jesus. And, and as I was there, I thought, I wonder if this does not feel good. So then I left that meeting. Now the people had gone, and I was still on the platform with the pastor. And as I'm leaving that meeting, there was one of the elders, one of the old elders in the church. He came up to me and he said, good job, young preacher. Give it to us again tomorrow night. He, he wanted me to go at him again the next night the same way. See, there's something in the human psyche that thinks that we need to beat up people because that's going to make them be holy. That's going to make them live right. And, and I didn't know any better, so I didn't know what to think or what to believe. Maybe I listened to that elder. But then later on when God revealed his grace to me, he reminded me of that, of that feeling I had standing there on the platform. This, this overwhelming feeling, this is not Jesus' ministry. This is you being angry that you're not having the same results as you did in the last two places and you're trying to make it happen. And the Lord reminded me, that's not the spirit of Jesus. But there's something in religion that wants to do that. See, I was not working with the Holy Spirit. You see, sin, according to Jesus' definition in Luke 15, sin is a broken relationship. You know, in Luke 15, it says that Jesus met. I don't know if we have that verse there. Jesus met with all the notorious sinners, and, and you know, they spoke to them. And the, it says the Pharisees were upset with him because he was so friendly and kind to the notorious sinners in the town. And then Jesus told these three parables about a lost coin, about a lost sheep, actually four parables, about a lost younger son and a lost older son. Each one of those, speak of a broken relationship. The little coin had lost relationship with the owner. The sheep had lost relationship with the sheep. The younger son had lost relationship with his father. And the older son, without going into the details, had also lost relationship with his father. Sin, as Jesus describes it, is a broken relationship. Now, during the time of the religious system called the law, sin is transgression of the law. But what about those who never received the law of Moses? So Jesus goes much deeper than just saying, oh, you broke the law, you broke a commandment, you broke a rule here. He's saying it's a broken relationship. So what's salvation? What is that the Holy Spirit brings people to? To a restored relationship. Otherwise, to be a Christian would be the best Christian in the world would be the best rule keeper. The one who can keep the most rules, he would be number one. And there wouldn't be much hope for any of us. But according to Jesus, sin is a broken relationship. Salvation is a restored relationship. And that relationship gives you power to live this overcoming life. You see, uh, uh, the, the, the Greek word is hamashia for sin. It means missing the mark. It means I've been aiming at this. I've been aiming at trying to keep the rules and do everything right, but I'm, I'm aiming in the wrong direction. Start aiming at the God who loves you, who accepts you and who has proven his love through Jesus Christ. So you want to work with the Holy Spirit? If you want to work with the Holy Spirit, then the key is 
to convince the world, convict the world of sin, of not believing on Jesus. You see, sometimes people say, you must deal with your sin. I've even heard someone say, you deal with your sin or sin is going to deal with you. And they think they really took them by the scruff of the neck and told them off. But you know, that's not the gospel. The gospel is we are incapable of dealing with our sin, which is precisely why God so loved the world that he sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ dealt with our sin. That's our message. It's not please come to our church to deal with your sin. You come and make your things right with God. Do you think you can make things right with God? That is to think too highly of yourself. Jesus has made things right for you. Jesus has dealt with your sin. Now come to him. You see, in the old covenant, if you look at all the prophets and the preachers back then, what did they preach about? Amos, Obadiah, Jeremiah. They preached about the sins of Israel. That was their topic. A little bit of prophecy about the coming Messiah, but mostly about the sins of the people. But in the new covenant, what are the preachers talking about? They're preaching Christ. Paul, Philip, John, they're preaching Jesus Christ. So people say, well, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm in the footsteps of Jeremiah. No, Jeremiah's time is gone. The old prophetic order headed up by Elijah, it's over. Goodbye. We wave goodbye at the Mount of Transfiguration. That's over. And now we hear Jesus Christ. So you and I are followers of Jesus, first and foremost. Followers of Paul who said, follow me as I follow of Christ. And we are gospel presenters. And the gospel is the power of God. Oh, I, I kind of, I thought I was going to get through that whole thing. I've only got one, I got two verses. When the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I didn't get to the righteousness and judgment that's coming up. But let's work in sync with the Holy Spirit to tell the world your sins have been forgiven. God bless you.